welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Al Franken, Mother Jones Radio, Rachel Maddow, The Majority Report, Ring of Fire, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Short amount of time left in today's show. I know we've kept you on the edge of your seat to... Do we uh, have more graphs? <laughs> no, but uh, on the on the issue of the gas prices, um, we told you the part of the president's plan that we did not like. The part of the president's plan uh, was, "Hey, I can lower gas prices. Let me take all the environmental regulations off the of the off the all uh, gas and oil companies, and that way, you know, uh, since they're not bothered by the environment, they can make uh, stuff for cheaper. And once they make stuff for cheaper, they could uh, sell it to you for cheaper. Now, based on that news, the gas price." did go down slightly today. Plus, he wants to tap into some of our oil reserves. There's a lot of politics behind that. He wants that, to not, he yeah, wants he's to not, not actually so much tapping tap. in. He's just not going to keep refilling. Not to it. Yeah, it's another way of tapping into it. It doesn't matter. That's a minuscule effect, and it's just mainly for show. The Democrats asked for it before, but it doesn't really mean anything either way. That part's irrelevant. Now, the part I do like is, and this was because, honestly, because of a significant amount of Democratic pressure, but it doesn't matter. If you do the right thing, you do the right thing. He said, look, the other thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to uh, take some of the uh, we're going to take some of the taxes off of gas. There's a lot of tax on gas. Now, of course, that means we'd get more and more deficit spending, which we wouldn't like. But he said, no, we're not going to do it for, uh, from the uh, regular budget. Whatever taxes that we're going to take off the gas prices, we're going to make the oil companies pay for it out of the tax cuts and subsidies we've already given them remember the 14 and a half billion dollar subsidy we just gave them last year in the middle of their record record profits so this is a terrific development yeah until the oil companies raise prices to make up for the difference yeah why can't there just be some sort of like level they hit where they can't charge us anymore in a particular year well there's a very good reason why he can't do that uh, but uh, is it is this price gouging? I mean, can't yeah, no, the, renters no. not up certain percentages? You know, yeah. I mean, landlords up certain percentages on apartments no, year no. after year. I mean, there's certain limits, so everyone isn't just stuck paying everything for necessary goods. Okay, we're definitely not going to be able to do this justice in the next minute and a half. Sorry. But that's okay. You're asking a very complicated question about price limits and subsidies and, and how the market works. But the, the bottom line is, no, you cannot... Uh, say you can't go above this price. That's a terrible economic idea. But what you but sometimes what happens is there's unnatural uh, com- uh, competitive situation. Meaning you get an oligopoly where a number of small companies or a small number of companies uh, control the market, and that way they can do price gouging. That way they can charge higher uh, profit margins. In that case, that's what Senator Schumer is saying is happening now. Yeah. I don't know if that is the case, but if that were the case, Senator Schumer, Democrat of New York, would be right. Say what we do at that point is antitrust. Right. We break up the oil companies so there's more competition. There is, yeah. You can't uh, uh, President Bush talks tough on price gouging. He will do nothing about it. The fact of the matter is by the same token that we can't, the government can't set a limit on the oil companies for raising prices. The oil companies also can't collude to keep prices artificially high. It strikes me as obvious that they are doing that and the administration can do something about that. They are duty bound under a capitalist system to do something about it and I don't think they will. So there you have it. Maybe we could do it in a minute and a half.
Uh, let, let's talk about the issue of the day, which is rising gas prices. And we, we, we've seen that they're in just the latest energy bill, tax incentives, tax subsidies, tax breaks, written to oil companies who are making record profits. What the hell is that about? Well, what that's about is that the oil industry, some years ago, as you remember, and other people in the uh, big energy, uh, met behind closed doors with Vice President Cheney, who was in the oil industry, have tremendous impact on George Bush, who is in the oil industry. Uh, he, he, by the way, he wasn't successful in it. One of the few. I mean, <laughs> no. He, he, here's a guy who couldn't find oil in Texas. <laughs> What can I say? There's your president. Uh, but the, what we are seeing right now, and here's the pity of it. You've got, you got a, a couple of major issues. Number one, uh, the oil companies are enjoying record-breaking profits. Uh, last year, ExxonMobil made $36 billion, which is more money, more profits than any corporation in the history of the world, and I guess they're doing even better this year. And to add insult to energy, I mean, this is how contemptuous... <laughs> insult to energy? <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. This is how <laughs> contemptuous they are. You've got working people in rural states like Vermont. It is not uncommon, as everybody in this room knows, for people to be traveling 100 miles to and from their jobs. They're shelling out now close to 3 bucks a gallon for gas. And in the midst of all this, where people are taking money right out of their paychecks, these guys say, okay, we are going to give the CEO of ExxonMobil, Mr. Lee Raymond, a $398 million retirement benefit. Can you believe that? $398 million while they're ripping off the American people. The thing is, in defense of Raymond, <laughs> he has 400 children. <laughs> And he wants each of them to grow up uh, lazy <laughs> and unproductive. And he won't be able to do that without the $400 million. Well, this is an important fact. I don't think most Americans actually knew that. And yeah, that, yeah. That puts a, a different understanding of, of that issue. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, we like to be fair. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, to these guys. But the issue here, this is the, you know, we got a president who prides himself on being a real tough guy. He is Mr. Tough. Well, if, oh, he, yeah. if he is so tough, why doesn't he invite the oil executives into the Oval Office and say, gentlemen, stop ripping off the American people, lower the price of gas? <laughs> and, and the other aspect about it, that's short term, but the other aspect about this is yeah. that we have got to move <laughs> away from fossil fuel to sustainable energy, and we could do that. Let me just mention, if I can, Al, one thing. Uh, last year, we were able to get some money here into the state of Vermont, which will test a Toyota Prius, which has been reconverted, so that it will be running around the state this summer and next winter 
without a gas tank. It will be running on hydrogen and the electricity generated by the hybrid mechanism. And do you think that's a good idea? I think that is a very good idea. Oh, okay. But that only, the potential is out there in terms of energy conservation. The idea that in America today, this is true, the vehicles that we are driving get worse mileage per gallon than was the case 20 years ago. That is insane. The technology is there to give us cars to get 50, 60, 70 miles per gallon. We can move big time into hybrids. Energy conservation in terms of our homes, our schools, and our offices is waiting to happen. You've got solar, you've got wind power, we've got all kinds of sustainable energy out Bio there. Biodiesel. Biodiesel. We have people on their own driving cars in America on old McDonald's french fry oil. Somehow or another, Detroit can't solve the problem. Well, you know, here's it, and I brought this up uh, earlier, and then we'll take a break. Frisk yesterday urged Congress, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, to pave the way for higher fuel efficiency standards. Yet, last year, during consideration of the 2005 Senate Energy Bill, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois proposed an amendment to raise CAFE standards for cars, SUVs and minivans, to 40 miles per gallon by 2015, Bill Frist voted against the bill. How shameless are these guys? What is it about them? How shameless are these guys? <laughs> it's, it's, they are terribly shameless. Uh, they have consistently opposed raising the cafe standards. Uh, and meanwhile, and frankly, what Durbin was talking about is fairly conservative. We're talking about the year 2015. The technology is there right now to make major advances. And if you look at global warming, if you look at the kind of asthma and illnesses that our kids are getting, if you look at the war in Iraq, you don't have to be a genius to say, let us break our dependency on oil. We have the capability of doing it. The technology is there. Let's have the guts to do it right now. Like a summer rose, I'm a victim of the fall, but I'm soon with my first guest, we're looking past the gas fumes of the current oil price hoo-ha to fit it into the long-term picture of oil reliance. We bring on Paul Roberts. He's the author of The End of Oil on the Edge of a Perilous New World. That book was a reality check on the finite oil supply and what that means economically and otherwise for people in countries around the world. Paul Roberts, welcome to Mother Jones Radio. Well, glad to be here. Now, we've got record-setting oil prices per barrel and record-setting profits for the oil industry. The population is furious. The president is having to soothe both the people and his oil constituency. I'm guessing that you're watching this through a slightly different filter than the rest of us. Well, I mean, yes and no. I'm, I'm a, um, I spent some time looking at the industry and sort of understanding how it works and why, but I'm also a consumer, and I fill up my car at a gas station like everyone else. So I'm um, pretty conscious of that sort of street uh, reality. Um, but I think, you know, the, the question that people have sort of beyond their weekly outlay for gasoline is, you know, how much longer um, are they going to have to put up with this? Uh, is cheap gas ever going to come back? Uh, you know, what does that mean for the, the kind of the car they buy, for where they can live? What does that mean for their jobs? You know, uh, are we going to see some uh, economic, uh, are we going to see a recession because of high oil prices? Well, you know, now, of course, you tempt me to ask you for a one-word answer. Are cheap oil prices ever coming back? Uh, no. I mean, we'll see, we'll see you know, the, the market's volatile, and volatility means that we'll see 
prices spike and, and probably drop occasionally. But the average price for oil is very likely going to remain much higher than it's been for the past two decades. Well, it's, the Americans are looking now to the government to fix this, and they're pretty mad about it. But you weren't shy in the end of oil about placing responsibility for our oil addiction on the civilians as well as the government. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we, we've gotten accustomed to the idea that it, there, there's a sense in America that we have a sort of a constitutional guarantee of, of cheap energy, cheap gasoline. And when we when that when that uh, cheap gasoline fades, we want to be angry at someone. Um, we typically blame politicians, we blame big oil companies, we blame OPEC, and all these players have a huge role in the rising oil prices. But the truth is that you know OPEC and the oil companies couldn't charge as much for oil as they do today if it weren't in such high demand. Mm-hmm. And you know that demand comes down to consumers. What's surprising is. Despite the fact that we've had high gasoline prices and high oil prices, we haven't seen the changes in consumer behavior that those high prices would have traditionally led us to expect. Um, you know, during the price spikes of the 70s and early 80s, we saw people change their driving habits. We saw them change, you know, exchange big cars for small cars and really sort of hunker down uh, and, and sort of take a survivalist, uh, you know, stance and, and, and really respond in constructive ways. Today, you know, people bitch and moan, but we're not seeing changes in, in say, the, the way that we're purchasing cars. Well, in fact, the new, new figures were out this week from the auto industry saying that they're still buying. The public is still going for eight-cylinder cars more than anything else. They are. I mean, the, the, the figures have, have remained pretty much unchanged. And on top of that, if you look at the way we drive, we're, we're, still, we're driving more miles this year than last year and more, you know, last year than the year before. And in some ways, you know, we're locked into our driving. I mean... You know, you, you can't drive halfway to work. You can't drive the kids halfway to school. So there's a certain inflexibility or, or what we call an inelasticity in, in gasoline consumption. But we aren't locked into our car purchases. You know, and again, there's, there, are, there are options out there. They're beginning to emerge from the margins and the hybrid cars uh, and simply smaller cars. And consumers are still reluctant to, to make that change. And so one has to wonder, what, why is that? Is it, do they believe the cheap gasoline is coming back um is you know do they think that it, this is just a temporary lull uh or rather a temporary price spike or is it is it that they're not paying attention i mean they, they complain but is it that these prices really aren't hurting them yet what about the whole concept of the end of oil are we seeing what we're witnessing this week are, are we seeing something that pitches us forward into the end of oil and the beginning of something else well, you know, usually, I mean, the classic ec- economic analysis would be that, you know, when prices rise steadily, that indicates that supplies are becoming more constrained for some reason. You know, it's harder to get oil out of the ground, and therefore producers charge more for it. The tough part about that is, is that, I mean, that while that makes sense on one hand, you know, it may be, and you'll hear this, this explanation from analysts, and particularly from OPEC, that, you know, we simply haven't invested enough in our oil production. We haven't put enough money back into drilling more wells or building more pipelines or tankers. And there's just a delay. There's a lag time between that extra investment going into the ground and, and that new oil coming out. Well, in fact, the president's moved this week to, to build more refineries faster with less review and open the Arctic for oil drilling again. Right. I mean, that's exactly, that's kind of the, that typifies that response where, you know, again, the problem isn't geological. It's not that we're running out of oil. The problem is that, you know, we simply haven't invested correctly. 
and that the market will correct, you know, but the market will, you know, that price will respond and the market will correct itself. And, you know, in a year or two or three, we'll have abundant oil, prices will drop, and we can go back to sort of forgetting about the energy problem. Well, let me make you president then. President Paul Roberts, what would you do in this situation right now? Well, I mean, first of all, I think I'd, I'd talk a little, uh, you know, more frankly than this administration, or really any administration, is willing to talk. I mean, we're just now hearing the Bush administration talk about being addicted to oil. And, you know, this he, he could have been talking about that five years ago. I think politically he's forced now to begin um, making those kinds of, of comments, which is important, but, I mean, it needs to go much further. So, I, so the first step would be a rhetorical one where you say, look, you know, it's not just that we're addicted to oil. We're addicted to, it, to a substance that, that is going to become more and more difficult to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to recognize that the status quo doesn't work, that 20 or 30 years of, of sort of happy times uh, as far as oil, you know, is concerned, those are slowly coming to an end, and that it's not going to be possible simply to make other people solve our problems for us. It's not going to be a matter anymore of simply negotiating with OPEC to get more oil to flow this way, that the changes are going to have to come at the consumer end, at the demand end. Paul Roberts is a regular contributor to Harper's Magazine. You've seen him right there about the timber industry, the auto industry, and the destruction of the Florida Everglades. Right now we're talking about his book, The End of Oil, and about what today's situation reflects from what he predicted in there. Paul, anything that you're hearing right now, that the president has sprinkled into his proposal some incentives for the development and use of alternatives. And the Republicans and Democrats are coming back with counteroffers, including dropping tax breaks for the industry, imposing windfall profits tax. Do any of the proposals that you're hearing from any side of this debate take into consideration the long view of less reliance on oil? It's, we have to sort of take a wait-and-see uh, stance in regard to these policy proposals. Uh, we haven't seen many details, and the devil is in the details in, in, in policy questions of this nature. You know, the president is talking about encouraging, you know, the development of alternative fuels like ethanol. He's talking about encouraging through tax credits um, the purchase of fuel-efficient vehicles like hybrids. That's all good. Uh, on the downside, he and a lot of other politicians are uh, trying to solve the problem by uh, increasing domestic production of oil, you know, domestic being in this country, particularly in Alaska. And, and everyone knows that for Alaska, for example, there is a great deal of oil up there, but it's not enough to significantly change America's import picture. Right. And so it's a huge waste of political capital to go in there and, and fight to get that oil out of the ground um, because the return will be so small. When you do look ahead to the Americans changing their ways a little bit, we've seen an increase in people using public transit in the last week in the ma- major cities, for example. Might this actually be a silver lining to what's going on with the oil? Well, I mean, that's, that's always been the, the sort of the hope from the standpoint of, of people who are really interested in changing the energy system. Every time we see higher prices, we're encouraged because we think that maybe this will be the time that consumers sort of come to their senses economically and begin adjusting their lifestyles, their energy-consuming behavior, their purchasing, you know, all these things. But then we can be discouraged when we see other data showing that, for example, as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, we're, we're still buying big cars. And so you really have to look at these things and, you know, you have to take six months or a year or two or three years to really get a sense of what consumers are doing. And, the, you know, the frustrating part of that is that two or three years from now, 
we might see a series of events that causes oil consumption to, to drop, or at least the growth in consumption to fall off. For example, we might see economic um, we might see an economic recession, a mild recession, in part caused by these high prices. When recessions happen, people use less oil, so demand would go down, and so would price. If you were taking the short view, you'd look at that and say, "Hey, the problem's over. You know, we've got cheap oil again, so we can go back to our very heavy oil use." Paul Roberts, I really appreciate our chat. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure. Paul Roberts, the author of *The End of Oil*. It's now time here on The Rachel Maddow Show to do what we enjoy doing every day, which is poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's right-wing political tactic is brought to you courtesy of the annual political pageant conducted at about this time of year every year in which everyone assumes their assigned places, poses in their assigned political poses, and preaches their assigned political sermon on the evils of high gas prices and who is to blame. Here's the problem, though. You hear this same debate every year. But every year, at least since George W. Bush has been president, one side of the debate gets more and more kooky, gets more and more unbelievable each passing year, and one side starts to sound like common sense. Let's do the common sense side first, okay? The left and the Democrats say every year about rising gas prices, hey, we're addicted to oil. This whole fossil fuel thing is not going to last in the long run, and we as a nation, for our national security, if for nothing else, should start investing in technologies and strategies that get us off this bus to nowhere. We have to reduce demand for petroleum products. We have to reduce our demand for gas. We've got to find other ways to run this this economy and this country, ways that don't involve us having to reside in the pants of the king of Saudi Arabia. That's basically the left argument every year. And every year, the right wing says, addicted to oil, the only reason our addiction is a problem is because we can't get our hands on enough of the stuff. Let us drill the caribou in the Alaska National Wildlife Reserve, right? That would provide enough oil even even in their wildest, most rosy predictions to supply American oil for about 10 minutes. They'd say, let's tap the strategic oil reserves, which is what Bush announced that he'd do yesterday. By deferring deposits until the fall, fall, we'll leave a little more oil on the market. A little bit. Every little bit helps. A really little bit. Deferring deposits into the strategic oil reserve saves less than one day's worth of oil. That was the big bold move yesterday. The right wing, and this is all over right wing talk radio at the moment, the right wing says it's the fact that there's a tax on gasoline. That makes it too expensive. See, it's not the addiction that's the problem. It's that we can't get enough drugs. Yesterday, kooky Senator Jim DeMint of South Carolina decided that it's Greenpeace's fault. It takes a loosening up of some environmental regulations that are really uh, regulations that have been promoted by radical environmentalists that uh, control the Democrat Party. Radical environmentalists that control the Democrat Party. That's what causes high gas prices. Exxon made higher profits last year than any other country in U.S., any other company in U.S. history. They gave a $400 million retirement package to their CEO when he retired. And the problem is Greenpeace. Greenpeace is who you're paying all that money to at the pump. 
If only there weren't environmentalists, we wouldn't have an oil problem in this country. Really, one of these stories gets kookier every year. I have a little bit of advice for the uh, uh, Bush administration. And uh, I think that they would do well to listen to this. And I'm being dead serious in how I'm going to help so them. So everybody, hang on. Let's give them a second to sort of pay attention because they're the, the, in the West Wing. We know they, they, they watch the show uh, and listen. Uh, but, you know, they're doing other things. So we're giving them time to sort of gather around advice, free advice coming from, uh, from, from Jack. Move a, cl- a little uh, further out on the edge of your seat. I know. All right, here's the situation. Uh, today, uh, Bloomberg is reporting the General Electric and, uh, and Duke Energy Corporation have come out and say, look, 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 look. global warming's real. Let's do something about it. I can't it. believe the guys at Duke Energy Corporation raped that stripper. No, that was the lacrosse team. Oh. Uh, okay. Duke Energy Corporation, one of the largest energy uh, corporations in the country. Obviously, GE is a giant. And what they're saying is, look, we don't want to deal with the state-by-state nonsense, and we're about to build a lot of things related to energy. We don't want to, you know, we do the lax standard under the Bush administration, and then a new administration comes in and says, nope, you built it all wrong. And a competent administration says, no, you got to take into account global warming. So let's just do it right from the get-go. Now, so that leads me to believe, look, you, the Bush guys have lost the, uh, the corporations, <laughs> and believe it or not. They've yeah. even done that on global warming. 85%, also in the Bloomberg story, 85% of Americans believe global warming is real, dangerous, and something that we should act upon. So you've lost the country. A number of Republican senators and congressmen have now come out, including Lindsey Graham, etc., so, Bush, what's stopping you? you? You already gave the subsidy to the oil companies. You've already taken care of those guys. You have nothing to lose. Just And it would do a world of good for you politically. It would seem like you're making real change if you came out and did one of your classic Bush flip-flops, like you did on the steel tariffs, like you did on the 9-11 Commission. Come out and say, yes, global warming is real, and I'm going to address it and go on the warpath. Like you, you lose nothing. You've already given all the money to the oil companies that supported you. Right like the Department of Homeland Security uh, as well, uh, a gigantic Bush flip-flop. So, uh, you know, you're exactly right. And, Jill, you were talking about how he doesn't have anything to lose by firing uh, Rumsfeld. I think he does. In this case, Jenks right. There is absolutely nothing to lose. This is a freebie flip-flop. Right. And it would do the, the America and the world a lot of good. You see, we're not trying to do political damage to you. We're trying to help you. For the love of God, do the right thing. I need someone to love me the whole Janine, yes. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that uh, gas prices have ri- risen almost 40 cents in the past two weeks. Well, as Steve Forbes said, if we get Iran over with already, Wall Street would calm down and everything would right itself. There you go. Okay, I don't know why you got to argue with that logic. No, of course. And, you know, what he forgot to let, let out was that it's all Bill Clinton's fault and the tree huggers. You know, because the, the environmentalists have had such sway. Over the Bush administration over the past five years. That's why back in 2000, when George Bush made it a campaign issue, accusing Al Gore of doing nothing in, 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 the, in the face of a $1.47 gas prices. 
And now we're standing, if you can get a, a gallon of gas for under three bucks, you're very fortunate. Well, thank God Greenpeace was audited by the IRS, paid for by ExxonMobil. There you go, exactly. Uh, and uh, the Democrats have been have been on this issue for uh, at least a couple of weeks now. Chuck Schumer uh, came out a couple of weeks ago saying there needs to be investigations into price gouging. Here's what Neil Cavuto said at the time, uh, just to catch you up with speed, just to give you a little context, folks, because here is the bottom line. What we're seeing from the Bush administration, what we're seeing from Republicans now is is the height of insincerity, the height of hypocrisy. There has been, I mean, this stretches back to the day that Reagan got into office. You've said this many times before, Janine. The first thing he did was, I say to you, American public, tear down those solar panels. Let freedom ring. Well, did you hear that Scorpion song about the solar panels coming down? <laughs> oh, is there really it's one? It's great. We can play it later for you. All right, good. Uh, and what we're going to do tonight, we have a great uh, collection of sound bites that tracks George Bush, Dick Cheney, and their whole perspective on the notion of conservation and on the whole perspective uh, of this. We're, we're in an energy crisis now. We, we are, have just about hit that point. People are having to buy uh, the lock caps for their gas tanks now. Uh, this is, it, it, and this has been coming. People have been saying it, and, and, and the Republicans have been fundamentally ignoring the, uh, the, the, the problem. And, you know, as, uh, as Nancy Pelosi said today, and we're going to play this clip as well, uh, look, what do you expect? you got two oil men, the top of this government. Of course you're going to get $3 gas prices. And and uh, Greg Palast has a book that's going to be coming out. And the thesis of it is that one of the reasons, if not the major reason, that the Bush administration wanted to go to Iraq was to prevent the Iraqi oil from hitting the international exchange. And uh, they wanted to tighten oil supply. All right, so first, let's start with Neil Cavuto. Uh, this is Neil Cavuto res- responding to Chuck Schumer's call for an investigation into price gouging. This is number seven. Chuck Schumer wants to investigate the oil companies for price gouging. Why doesn't he ask his fellow politicians to do the same about tax gouging? After all, oil companies' profit works out to about nine cents a gallon. Taxes more like 50 cents a gallon. But you don't hear him whining about the taxes. After all, that's an easy source of revenue for a monotonous list of social programs whose failures are legendary. Better to keep funding them through taxes that are killing us than demanding accountability to all of us. You do motorists no good, Senator, when you motor past the facts and only stop for an open microphone. Now, I'll tell you I don't even understand what he just said. Well, uh, I'll break it down for you. But first of all, I, can, I will be willing to bet you my chocolate cupcake that I've been cherishing all day, waiting to have my... Which my, you are my, going to split with me because it's so huge. I don't, I don't think that's going to Cupcake happen. that they gave you. I don't think we have a knife. Paid surgically $18 dollars for. Now, uh, but uh, I, can, I will bet you this cupcake that Neil Cavuto tonight did not say the same thing about George Bush. And this notion that the right wing is trying to push, that somehow the 20 or 30 or 40 cents a, ga- a gas tax, which, which of course is overblown anyways is somehow putting money into the coffers. Listen, this is money that is going back to the people in terms of infrastructure, in terms of trying to pay down our debt, and, and, and which is at record levels. It's just absurd. And which list of social programs that are legendary failures is he referring to? Well, I, I, I don't know. I guess maybe the SEC, which if it didn't exist, Neil Cavuto wouldn't have a job. All right, so let's go back. This is George Bush today. Okay, uh, talking about uh, how his energy plan is is, is going gangbusters, just like the economy, folks, number one. One of the past responses by government, particularly from the party of which I'm not a member, (laughs) has been to have... 
to propose price fixing or to increase the taxes. Those, those, those plans haven't worked in the past. I think we need to follow suit on what we have been emphasizing, particularly through the energy bill, and that is to encourage conservation, to expand domestic production, and to develop alternative sources of energy like ethanol. Okay, first of all. Is that what the energy task force behind closed doors meetings were about, that he didn't want us His energy bill actually capped the tax breaks for companies that sold over 60,000 hybrid cars. So it basically said to those people, this is a dead ender for you. If you do well, okay, if you do well, we will screw you. Secondly, Reed, I believe, called for a gas tax holiday two months ago. Reed called for one. Thirdly, this notion of conservation, talk about coming a day late. Uh, This is not even a day late. This is uh, uh, George Bush. On September 23, 2002, number three. Congress also must understand they've got to pass an energy bill. We need an energy bill that encourages consumption. What? We need an energy bill that encourages consumption. Now, let me spell this out for the conservatives and the Republicans who listen to our program, because I know uh, uh, the, the rest of us get this already. But consumption is the opposite of conservation. In other words, if you encourage more consumption, what you're doing is you're discouraging conservation. Now, there's a reason why George Bush wanted to, to uh, uh, decrease the incentive to save, that he wanted to encourage people to consume more, because that is their philosophy. When you're an oil guy, the best thing that can happen is that consumption goes up. Now, we're all hearing this story about it. It's all about demand increasing. Well, demand is down in this country relative to last year. You do not see oil prices around the world going up 200, 250% over the past four years. So there's obviously something problematic going on with uh, this country and the system we have here. Here is Dick Cheney on May 1st, 2001. Speaking about conservation. Conservation may be a sign of personal virtue, but it is not a sufficient basis for sound, comprehensive energy policy. So what he's basically saying is that, well, if you can serve, good for you. That's just like table manners. But we have no program that we can establish on conservation. We don't need conservation. In fact, uh, Ari Fleischer at the time said uh, that... You can't push conservation. That's, a, that's anti-American. What about Bill Bennett's personal virtues and all those conservatives said about personal responsibility and personal virtue being the cornerstone of this conservative movement? Well, apparently not when it comes to oil. Let me read you what, uh, what uh, Ari Fleischer said. The president believes that it's an American way of life, speaking about uh, the excessive oil con- consumption, and that it would be the goal of policymakers to protect the American way of life. At the time, Andrew Bernstein, this is back in, in May of 2001, Andrew Bernstein uh, wrote in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, this is uh, one of these uh, conservative shills, conservation is essentially the moral code of self-sacrifice applied to current energy problems. It is immoral because conservation repudiates the American dream. The United States became great because it embodied a moral code of rational self-interest, the principle that men should be free to create abundance in pursuit of their own happiness. This is the perfect example of how conservatives live for today, damn the consequences. 
Unfortunately for America, today is now yesterday's tomorrow. And we're getting screwed by their policies from yesterday's by, uh, gone by. You're saying tomorrow's the new today? <laughs> or yesterday's the new tomorrow? Uh, we're working in the temporal plane that I... That's Coco Chanel, by the way. We'll be right back in the majority report. You know, it was almost like black humor watching the shrub give a speech this week about how the Republicans want to distance themselves from the piggish oil industry that's gouging billions of dollars these days at the gas pump. The truth is George Bush and his mercenary bunch of lapdog Republicans have helped the oil industry invent price gouging over the last six years. A handful of oil companies, with the help of virtually every Republican in Congress, is now able to pull in collective profits this year alone of almost a quarter of a trillion dollars. The Bush family, you understand, never has moved far away from their roots, where they became millionaires from their Texas ties to the oil fields. That's the very clear reason that at every step over the past six years, Bush and his lockstep Republican Congress has so desperately fought windfall taxes for price-gouging oil companies like Exxon and Conoco and Marathon. That's the sole reason that our fully Republican-controlled majority in the House and in the Senate have refused to put price controls in place to demand that all these oil corporate bandits play fair and play honest with American consumers. The truth is that oil industry lobbyists have been so sure that they're above the statutory laws and that they're above the laws of decency that they're actually threatening Republicans with political reprisals unless those Republicans continue to act like trained organ-grinder monkeys too gutless and too terrified to actually protect American consumers from the greed plague that's been unleashed on all of us by Exxon and Shell since Bush came to town. To give you an idea of just how completely Bush and the Republicans are owned by the oil industry these days, think about this. Even Richard Nixon showed enough courage to threaten the oil industry with windfall taxes and price controls when his Democratic Majority Congress made it clear that they were going to take matters into their own hands with legislation if Nixon didn't act. Consumer advocates have been begging this Republican president and his Republican Congress for years to control that oily industry that's shown us that they could not care less about what America thinks about their piggish conduct. They're above all that. While profits for the oil industry are moving into the trillion-dollar levels, Bush and his Republican Congress are actually writing special tax benefits for the industry that put $2.3 billion more into the pockets of an industry that freely admits that they have such a surplus of cash that they don't even know where to put it all. But while the Republicans have been giving the oil industry record amounts of tax breaks, those same Republicans have been slashing the budgets for alternative and renewable energy sources such as solar power, ethanol power, electric power. Why? Because the oil industry demanded, yes, they ordered and demanded Bush and his Republicans
Republicans to slow down on alternative energy sources until the oil industry could squeeze every last penny out of American consumers at the pump. To hell with our economic future and to hell with the threat of global warming. It's all about reckless, even criminal greed by this industry. The simple fact is big oil owns George Bush lock, stock, and barrel, and they own his Republican band of political thugs. It's like the Republicans made a deal with the devil to get all that campaign money in in 2004, and now Belzebub owns their soul. It's a story as old as the Republican Party. When oil executives came to Washington to give testimony about how badly they were stealing from all of us, there was one stipulation that their House Republican racketeers made very clear. That stipulation was extraordinary, unheard of. It was an agreement where not one of those Texas oilmen would have to be sworn to actually tell the truth. They refused to put their hand on a Bible. They refused to be sworn like every other witness who appears before Congress. Why did they get away with that? (laughs) Well, you know why. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. President, I get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. If I was president, now we're going to start the show this week by playing a new game called Carl Castle's Wayback Machine. <laughs> Just this morning, Carl put his stainless steel travel mug into the microwave. And the resulting explosion disrupted the space-time continuum. So it's true. That's what happened. So you're going to hear quotes from the past that strangely became relevant this week. Your job, tell us whose words are now coming back to haunt them, or why, two times out of three. You ready to play? All right, let's do this. All right, your first blast from the past is actually three quotes. George Bush has become something of an embarrassment. And... Bush has given the impression that he is more eager to please than lead. And? No president has looked this impotent this long when it comes to defending presidential powers and prerogatives. Now that was pundit Tony Snow. He was giving President Bush the back of his hand in 2005. Well, Mr. Snow just got a new job as the official spokesman for whom? He's the head of the press, is he? Or the White House. Yes, exactly, the White House. President Bush. Now... Now, those critical quotes got a lot of play this week, making it seem as if President Bush had taken the bold step of actually hiring someone who disagrees with his policies. <laughs> you may laugh. And, well, you should. Because well, it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier than finding someone who doesn't. <laughs> Snow, of course, we should point out, has only criticized the president for not pursuing his policies far enough. As in his, his well-known 2004 column, Mr. President, if God didn't want you to nuke the Middle East back to the Jurassic, he wouldn't have given you those missiles. Wow. Yeah. For real? No, I made that up. Okay. <laughs> Plausible. Political observers say it will be an improvement because instead of Scott McClellan, who could only repeat the administration's misleading talking points, now reporters will be briefed by a man independent enough to make up his own. 
Charlie, I know that you've been critical of Mr. Me? McClellan. Yes, you, sir. Do you think that Tony Snow, I mean, he is obviously a very articulate, smart guy, experienced in government, and knows the press corps. Don't you think that'll be an improvement for everybody? Do you think he's changed jobs? He was an anchor at Fox News, and now he's the White House spokesman. <laughs> is he even changing desks? I no. mean, does he even bother have to, like, pack up some boxes and move this Charlie, stuff? that's not fair. It's a different logo. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's right. It's reversible. He probably took a pay cut. Yes, he did, in fact. He, he actually mentioned that. I'm taking a massive pay cut to do this. But that's the kind of patriot he is. I, no, I, my feeling is that people didn't like McClellan, not so much that he lied all the time, because that's what you expect them to do. Right. All of them, for any administration. But he did it so badly. And yeah. I think that people were professionally offended. I think there's a sense of, come he, now. People, people had grown used to the, the smooth, self-hating a plum of an Ari Fleischer. Exactly. And then, and then they, they, got, they got McClellan. Yeah, who was so Flop sweat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Andrew, you still with us? Still with you. All right. Amazing. <laughs> Remarkable. <laughs> Andrew, um, here we go. A temporal wormhole has just opened up, and through it we hear your next quote, this one echoing up from 2001. There are no accounting issues, no trading issues, no reserve issues, no previously unknown problem issues. The company is probably in the strongest and best shape it's ever been in. So five years ago, that man was really optimistic. This week, he's on trial. Mainly because, guess what? His company was not quite in the best shape it had ever been in. Who, who is it? It's, uh, Kenneth Lay. Kenneth Lay, very good, yes. Ever since Enron collapsed, pretty much right after Mr. Lay made that statement back in 2001, he has portrayed himself as a bit of a, a sad sack, a poor, gullible guy who was taken in by his rapacious criminal underlings. But then he took the stand this week. Yeah, he cracked like an egg, right? Yeah. And it, well, he, I mean, it wasn't quite like, you know, uh, Commander Queeg on the stand. Right. But... He, you know, he did get kind of angry, and he started whining about how everybody is mean to him, and he had to sell his ski condo in Aspen. True. He did say, though, that he had, quote, lived the American dream. And a lot of other people's American dreams. Exactly. The audience, the audience it were just civilians from Houston who wanted to see the trial of this guy, and they all erupted into laughter. Yeah. Oh, that, that couldn't have been a good moment for Ken. No, because the thing is, although he has, he has of course gotten really rich on the backs of others, he hasn't yet completed the second, more important part of the American dream, getting away with it. Right. Or hosting the reality TV show. No. Right, that's, the comeback. That's the comeback. going to come yeah. after the trial, I think. Right. All right, Andrew, Carl has one more quote that's echoing down the years. This one from the editors of the National Review, writing in early 2003. The price of oil might drop to $20 per barrel or less giving us the equivalent of an annual tax cut of about $120 billion per year. And this is a tax cut the entire world benefits from. That was just one of the many happy predictions in the spring of 2003 that what would really help lower gas prices? I'm going to get the war in Iraq. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Among the many, many good reasons we had to invade Iraq was that the invasion would result in oil prices so low that we'd all be buying a third SUV just to have an extra to match our fall wardrobe. <laughs> this week, of course, with oil prices at the highest they have ever been and gas at about three bucks a gallon, the president himself announced a program to help lower gas prices. His proposal? Invade Canada and take away their cars. 
leaving more gas for us. <laughs> Carl, how did Andrew do in our quiz? Andrew did very well, Peter. Three correct answers, so I'll be doing the message on his home answering machine. Well done. Congratulations, Andrew. Bye, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, out of all those wonderful and rich things, my favorite, not the $100, not the we weren't with the oil companies, the Durham, forget all that. So they do a little thing here, the shtick, the Republican uh, leadership does, and they say, okay, look, hybrid cars, we're all about the hybrid cars. So Dennis Hastert, the Speaker of the House for the Republicans, got, goes and drives in a drives away in a hybrid car, and everyone's like, oh, look at that, Republicans are fair. Dennis Hastert could fit in a hybrid? <laughs> well, apparently not, because as he drives away, some enterprising photographer follows his car. He drives for about a couple of blocks, pulls over, gets in his real car. Gets in his SUV. <laughs> Show the giant picture. giant SUV to fit his big, fat ass. There it is, on theyoungturks.com. I love it. There's a picture of him getting out of the SUV and getting into the SUV. You're going to drive getting out of the hybrid. I mean, getting out of the hybrid I mean, and getting admit into it. Admit it. I mean, that's just gross what he's doing. <laughs> getting out of the hybrid, getting into the SUV. Uh, and you got your his fat ass in the picture, too. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. These are your Republicans. No, no, they got it, it under control. Like he's running. <laughs> he's like, get me out of here. Get me out of this goddamn hybrid. <laughs> Couldn't even drive two more blocks to the Capitol. Ah, oh, gotta love these guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. This show's going out with a wink and a nod to the very first soldier in Iraq who has uh, made his presence known by joining my Frapper map last night. I uh, have just been going through some of his stuff on the web today, and um, it seems like a pretty interesting guy. I mean, he is a liberal on one hand, so he obviously hates America, but then again, he's a soldier fighting for America's freedoms in Iraq, so... He's definitely a, a you know a complicated fellow, um, or maybe just confused. But um, but he's got a website and a blog and a podcast and he's got the whole thing going on. It kind of makes me wonder what the hell we're paying him to do over there, anyways. But um, but it was pretty interesting stuff. So you should check all of that out. He's at godlesskinzer.com. First of all, you gotta love that. That's uh, Godless and Kinzer, K-I-N-S-E-R dot com, all one word, of course. And you can check out what he's been working on. Also, you can find him on my Frapper map if you'd like. Um, it, there's a link to that uh, on my website, bestoftheleftpodcast dot com. And when you get to the Frapper map, if you have trouble finding him. He's the one in Iraq. That's ridiculous, first of all. Talk about reach out and touch somebody. It's pretty exciting for me, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, things have developed this way. Anyways, that's all I've got for you. Have a good one, everybody.